Hello, and welcome to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. This is your host, Kate Carter. I'm Kylie Colwell. And I'm Holly Spear. And we're just going to jump right into today's episode. So this is the case of Michael Gargiulo, a.k.a. the Hollywood Ripper. In 1993, in Glenview, Illinois, 18-year-old Trisha Picaccio had gotten together with a group of friends on Friday the 13th to go out to dinner at TGA Fridays. And then afterwards, they participated in a scavenger hunt. Sounds like my kind of date night, you know? Trisha got home around 1 a.m. And to her surprise, someone was hiding in the bushes near her home. This person ambushed her, stabbed her to death, and was just a few feet from her door. The next morning, Trisha's father was walking to his van when he noticed two tennis shoes by the side door of the house. When he investigated further, he found the body of his daughter near the garage. He let out a blood-curdling scream. In an attempt to revive her, he was hoping beyond hope that she was still alive. The father, Rick, said, quote, I died right then and there. That's the worst feeling in your life when you can't do nothing for nobody that you love. 18-year-old Trisha was described as an energetic, always happy, and loved everyone and everything. She trusted everyone and had a great attitude and knew what she wanted out of life. At the time of her death, Trisha was just days away from starting her freshman year of college at Purdue to study engineering and environmental issues. The Glenview, Illinois community was besides itself trying to wrap their heads around who would have targeted such a bright, loving young woman with her whole life ahead of her. The Cook County State's Attorney's Office began investigating immediately, and the first officer reported in retrospect that he believed the crime scene could have been handled a lot better, which I feel like that's every case we hear, you know, like the crime scene is never handled properly. And the officer reported that the team assigned to the case did not do an adequate job securing the crime scene and protecting the potential evidence. The Cook County Police originally had 15 suspects that they were looking into. The first suspect they started with was a neighbor and friend of Trisha's two brothers named Mike Gargiulo. Mike was a very strong young man whose friends said to seem how he had two different sides. First, upon meeting him, he seemed like this shy, awkward teen, and friends said that other than that, they referred to him as having a crazy switch. So if he really wanted to get something, he was going to get it one way or another. Trisha Picaccio's family wasn't too suspicious of their quiet young neighbor at the time. But after Trisha's death, he started giving them gifts. At one point, Mike had brought them a bouquet of flowers. At Easter, he brought them a lily. At some point, he bought them a gift certificate for a local restaurant. And he even bought Trisha's father, Rick, a shirt. Police found this behavior very strange. And a psychologist reported to the police that it seemed like Mike was atoning for his sins, you know, like giving them presents. Now, Mike had a small criminal record for theft, and Trisha's brother, Doug, also reported a strange conversation that he had had with his friend, Mike, where he asked Doug if he knew who had killed his sister and what would he do to that person. Doug responded that he would kill the person that killed his sister. And soon after that, the police called Doug to inform him that Mike had called the police on him, stating that he was threatening him. Mike eventually agreed to speak to the police and was aware that they were also looking into another friend named Eric as a suspect. So, of course, when he spoke to police, he was more than eager to point the blame in Eric's direction. Mike claimed to the police that the morning after Trisha's murder, Eric came to his home and asked him to hide something that he was carrying in a gym bag. Mike claimed that he didn't know what the gym bag contained, but strongly implied that it contained the murder weapon, and somehow his story worked. 
The friend, Eric, flat out refused to speak to police, and he quickly became their prime suspect. Unfortunately, the police were never able to conclusively tie Mike, Eric, or any other suspects to Trisha's murder. Strange enough, Mike showed up to Trisha Picaccio's home five years later and asked to speak with her father, Rick. He waited for more than an hour for Rick to return home. When Rick recalls seeing Mike's face when he got home, he says that he had a look on his face like he wanted to tell him something. But before Mike could tell Rick what he wanted to say, his father and sister strangely arrived in a car and told him that he needed to leave with them. Trisha's parents, Rick and Diane, say that this was the moment they became convinced that Mike had something to do with their daughter's death. Okay, it wasn't when he gave the dad a shirt? Because that was an odd little gift. Right. Like flowers I get, gift certificates to like places. Yeah, sure. Maybe he was just trying to be nice. But then he like gives the father a shirt. This is when they became convinced that Mike had to do something with their daughter's death. So they called the police and reported the strange incident. But unfortunately, by the time that the police got to Mike, he had skipped town and moved to California to, and this put an end to his run as being the main suspect in Trisha Picaccio's murder. We're in the 90s, but you wouldn't think moving states would cancel you out as a suspect. But So police continued to work through their leads, but they were unable to find any evidence, and the case went cold for over a decade. Now, skipping forward to 2001 in Hollywood, California, 22-year-old Ashley Ellerin, she was a beautiful, vibrant, fun-seeking transplant from Northern California, and she had moved to L.A. to pursue fashion design and was a student at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. She quickly developed a strong group of friends, and they all shared the same interest in exploring L.A., particularly the nightlife, and rubbing elbows with celebrities. So Ashley eventually caught the eye of a rising actor. And after hanging out with him a couple of times, the two started dating. The actor asked Ashley to come to come with him to a Grammys after party on February 21st, 2001. And she was, of course, excited to join him that night. The plan was for the actor to pick up Ashley and bring her to the party. And he arrived at her home around 10.45 p.m., but Ashley never answered the door. The actor claimed to have looked through Ashley's windows before he gave up waiting on her, and he states that he saw what he thought was spilled wine on the floor. Very tragically, it turned out not to be wine that the man saw on the floor that night. The next morning, Ashley's roommate came home to find Ashley stabbed to death on the stairs near the entryway of their home. The rising actor was none other than Ashton Kutcher. Juicy of you to bring up the story when he's in hot water. Funny that that happened at the same time. Did you guys know of the story with Ashton Kutcher? I remember hearing about him later testifying at the trial about the girl and not showing up at the party, but I did not look into the case whatsoever. I've heard that. I've heard that. Yeah. Same as Kylie. Police reported that it seemed whoever killed Ashley had specifically targeted her and seemed fueled by a tremendous amount of rage against her, and this was based on the severity and number of stab wounds. Unfortunately, the police lacked any solid leads, and their only suspect was someone that Ashley had met a couple weeks ago. This guy had introduced himself as a heating and cooling technician, and he went by the name of Mike Gargiulo. As we already know, Mike Gargiulo had moved to California to escape the scrutiny of the police investigating the Trisha Picaccio murder, but he also wanted to pursue acting and boxing, which he did with limited success when he first arrived. 
Mike was described as a strange, quiet, and withdrawn guy. And when he met Ashley and her roommates and they interacted with him, he gave them an odd vibe as well. Ashley's friends don't remember Mike asking Ashley out on any date, but they did report him being strangely fixated on Ashley and her lifestyle. It was to the point where he would stare at her at parties. And there was this one time where Ashley's roommate found Mike running his car in the early hours of the morning outside, just watching her window. The roommate confronted Mike the next day when he dropped by for a visit. And Mike claimed that he couldn't go home that night because the FBI were waiting for him at his house to collect DNA samples for a murder that had occurred near Chicago. Not suspicious at all. Yeah. When the roommate asked him what Mm -hmm. he had to hide, Mike put his leg up on the couch and started to pull a knife out of a holster that he had strapped to his ankle. The roommate immediately rushed him out of the house and demanded that he never returned. Ashley and her friends assumed that he had been trying to impress them with his strange behavior And they ended up dismissing all of his claims completely. That's so impressive. Yeah. Ooh, so impressive. The FBI is after you and you pulled a knife out on me? And you're watching our roommate from your car, like her window. He's so cool and mysterious. Unfortunately, once again, police weren't able to find any credible evidence tying Mike or anyone else to Ashley's murder. And this case went cold. Fast forward again, in 2005, LA's suburb of El Monte, a 32-year-old named Marina Bruno was found stabbed to death in her bed. Someone had removed a screen from her kitchen window, found a kitchen knife, and had attacked her while she slept defensiveless in her own bed. Much like Trisha Picaccio's murder, police reported that the violence inflicted on Maria was phenomenal and that she left somewhat mutilated from the attack. And just like the case of Ashley Ellerin, Maria was very beloved and had no obvious enemies that would inflict any type amount of violence on her. The police eventually eliminated burglary assault as motives for this murder, and they basically stated that Maria had been, quote, killed just to be killed. Luckily, this time, the murderer accidentally left something behind at the scene, a blue cotton shoe covering. So when I say a blue cotton shoe covering, what pops in my head, because I tried to look up pictures of the shoe covering, because so far there's no evidence that any of the other murders. What I have in my head is basically like when you're in the hospital and you have to put the blue shoe coverings on your shoes, like to go into surgery and stuff. That's that's what I'm thinking. I think that's what it is. But you know what's very odd and funny? I know I was talking about that show um, based on a true story. Yeah. The show on Peacock, it's about the true crime podcasters and they have spoiler alert they have like the actual serial killer like do the podcast with them and that's how they figured out who the serial killer was was because of the blue shoe covers i um, wonder if it's based off of the story I, that's what i'm thinking because it is in la oh interesting so other than the blue cotton shoe covering there was also a drop of blood on the shoe covering that dna tested and confirmed that it was maria Maria had originally immigrated to the United States from El Salvador as a child, and she went on to meet and marry her husband when she was pretty young. But at the time of her death, she was a mother of two-year-old twins, a four-year-old, and a five-year-old. Maria had recently separated from her husband, who had custody of the children, and she was just getting back on her feet as a single woman. 
Maria had moved into an apartment complex, and you'll never guess who lived across the courtyard right in front of her door. Yep, that's right, Mike Gargiulo. At the time, Mike didn't come on the police radar, and with no other evidence other than the shoe covering to work with, the case went cold. So another fast forward. In 2008, this time in Sacramento, California, at around 11.40 p.m., a man broke into the second-story apartment of a single young woman named Michelle Murphy. He broke in through a window that was slightly open, proceeded into her bedroom where she was sleeping, and Michelle was awoken by the motion of a knife being plunged into her body. Michelle was stabbed multiple times in the chest, shoulders, right arm, and also had wounds on her hands from attempting to grab the knife. Now, remarkably, Michelle was able to get into a position where she was able to kick the assailant off of her, and instead of completing his attack, he ran away. Michelle reported that her attacker said, quote, I'm sorry, as he ran away. The attacker left a trail of blood out of the apartment complex and down the steps leading away from the complex. Police followed the trail, but it came to an end and the attacker was long gone. But they did submit the blood DNA for testing, and about 25 days later, they received a hit. And do you want to guess who the blood belonged to? Mr. Mike. Mike Gargiulo. One day later, Mike was arrested and charged with attempted murder, and police learned he had been living directly across the alley from Michelle's apartment with a direct view into her bedroom. Police said Mike didn't seem surprised at all when they apprehended him, and he responded by saying, quote, which agency is this? Turns out Mike's DNA had been collected by the Cook County Police over a decade ago, and so Sacramento Police immediately contacted Cook County to see where the connection was. And Chicago authorities informed them that Mike was a suspect in the murder of Trisha Picaccio. Cook County had actually reached out to the L.A. detectives in 2002 and asked them for help in collecting a sample of Mike's DNA. Very coincidentally, they got the lead detective on the Ashley Ellerin case on the phone when they called. It ended up taking the L.A. detective over a year to track down Mike and collect the DNA sample. Then, on a hunch, the Sacramento detective reached out to the lead detective on the Maria Bruno case, and they traveled to El Monte to help search Mike's old apartment, and that's where they found a matching blue cotton shoe cover. It was hidden in the attic, and it ended up being identical to the one they found after Maria's murder. So all of the detectives submitted their evidence and combined it to the district attorney in Los Angeles. The district attorney determined that there was sufficient evidence to charge Mike Gargiulo with the murders of Maria Bruno and Ashley Ellerin. But one question, like one big question arose. After Mike was charged with the now three murders, why was he never arrested for Trisha Picaccio's murder back in 2002 when the DNA matched? Police learned that the DNA collected by the L.A. detectives was a confirmed match for some unidentified DNA found on Trisha's fingernails. So they confirmed it and they knew back in 2002 that it was Mike's DNA. Because they found it on fingernails, he wasn't arrested because they weren't able to decide whether it was a defensive wound or through casual contact. Mike was a family friend at the time and frequently visited in the house. So they didn't feel as if there was enough 
like evidence to build a case against him. When they did collect the evidence or the DNA, they only used a single swab to collect it on her Trisha's fingers. So it was impossible to, ter- to determine if it had come from the top of her fingernail or underneath it. Yeah, because I feel like that make, might make a difference if it was defensive or just like the top of your fingernail, right? Right. If you just have this DNA, you can't say the exact circumstances, how it got on your victim's body, and that's the only evidence you have. I mean, if I was the DA, I definitely would not prosecute just with that. Right. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, a few years later where all these other stories came out that they were like, oh, there's a pattern. Yeah. So despite the hesitancy of the Cook County authorities to arrest Mike in 2002, Trisha's family was hopeful that his arrest for the California murders would change that. But unfortunately, nothing happened. So fast forward to 2011, and 48 Hours aired a story about Mike Gargiulo and the murders. And right after the show aired, a man named Leary reached out to the show and said that he had information that might help them with Trisha's murder. Leary had apparently worked with Mike as a bouncer in Hollywood and claimed that when they all worked together, Mike had bragged once upon a time about murdering a girl in Chicago, which is such a casual thing to brag about. Well, this isn't the first time he's done it. Right. And nobody believes him because they think he's just being weird. Another bouncer friend that was present also confirmed the story. They claimed that Mike said, quote, yeah, I buried a bitch. I left the bitch on the steps for dead. Leary and his friend thought Mike was making it up as he was known for always making up stories, and the two men dismissed his claims until they saw him on the 48 Hours show. After this new evidence was presented, Cook County State's attorney felt like they finally had enough evidence to charge Mike with Trisha Boccaccio's murder. Mike Gargiulo's trial for the murders of two women and the attempted murder of a third began on May 2, 2019. This made it the longest case to ever go to trial in California history. It took over 11 years. Quote, there have been nearly 100 hearings. He has fired his attorneys. He has even tried to represent himself. But now that he has a high-power court-appointed team, the legal wait is over. I would also just like to say, I feel like we've mentioned this before. If you're ever going to commit a crime, do not try to be your own like representation. Even if you are an attorney. Even if you are an attorney, it does not work. You will be laughed at and you will be convicted. Witnesses at the trial included Michelle Murphy, the victim who survived, who described grabbing the knife as Mike tried to kill her, and another witness, Ashton Kutcher, who had planned to take out victim Ashley Ellerin to a Grammy party the night she was murdered. The prosecution claimed that Mike was someone who was violent towards women, interested in serial killer Ted Bundy, and in his free time studied forensic science. One of Mike's best friends claimed that he had studied forensic to prepare to get away with crimes. He would, quote, go online to learn about forensics, to learn about other people's mistakes, other criminals' mistakes, and how to get away with crime. His friend stated that Mike told him if he ever got caught with a crime, he would just lie until he died. I think it's funny how he did all this research into other killers and not making the same mistakes they did. And he did a pretty good job of not leaving evidence. till the last one. Yeah, and then... What really messed him up with him bragging. Yeah. The shoe covering, they would have never figured out. The woman that survived wasn't able to pin him. They didn't collect any DNA from that because he didn't really do anything. And it was just because he bragged to coworkers that he had killed someone. Prosecutors presented evidence that Mike had studied the anarchist cookbook of how to learn to kill with a knife. 
specifically focusing on stabbing the neck and said that Mike gained sexual satisfaction from his kills. Quote, the prosecution points out that Mike Gargiulo never raped his victims, but he controlled them and the control itself was a sexual thrill for him. It's control over life and death, that violence that has become sexualized. So Mike's trial lasted about three months. It ended up including 79 witnesses, 350 pieces of evidence. And at the end, Mike was found guilty of attempted murder of Michelle Murphy, guilty of first degree murder of Maria Bruno and guilty of first degree murder of Ashley Ellerin. The jury recommended the death sentence But at the time, the governor of California placed a moratorium, which I had to look up, on executions in the state. A moratorium basically means a temporary suspension. The jury was like, death sentence. And the governor was like, oh, so sorry, you can't. I've kind of banned them for the time being. Mike Gargiulio was officially sentenced on July 16th, 2021. And he was sentenced to death. Mike was then extradited to Illinois for the 1993 killing of Trisha Picaccio in his Illinois hometown and was charged as guilty. If extradited again, he was going to be facing another 25 years to life, which doesn't matter because he was going to be on death row anyways. So according to reports, Mike is currently serving his time on death row at the San Quentin State Prison, but Mike maintains his innocence to this day. And that is the story of Mike Gorgiulio, the Hollywood Ripper. So on a side note, though, because I want to leave you with something interesting, something that I found out while doing my research is that Mike was married in 2007 to a woman named Anna Luz Gonzalez, and they had a child together before she divorced him in 2009. This is like in the middle of his killings. He got married and had a child. And now there are more articles that circulate online that another woman, her name is Amber Touchton. She attempted to marry Mike while he was imprisoned on death row, but the LA County Sheriff office did not grant the marriage as legal. Nothing else is known about these women on their lives today because I tried so hard to stalk and see like what's going on, where are they, what's the kid doing, especially the one that's trying to marry him on death row and I couldn't find anything. So there's articles out there that say, you know, these women's names and stuff, so I I believe they exist, but definitely private life now. But always find it fascinating when women marry criminals. Yeah. Jailhouse murders are very interesting to me. Jailhouse weddings. Oh, did I say murders? Sorry. (laughs) I love how the LA County was like, yeah, no, we're not going to let you marry him. What's the point? What? I don't get it. But apparently like she calls him her husband. So like there's articles that I read because I had to figure that out. It was like, you know, her and her husband. And I was like, wait a minute, but they're not married. She just says husband. We have a couple screws loose. And with that, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. If you want even more information, including photos and sources of the case, you can check out our blog at OverMyDeadPod.com. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you're listening to this and check us out on social media at OverMyDeadPod. And we will see you next week with another thrilling case. Bye. 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 And we're going to go ahead and jump right into our segment of overtime. I believe this week, Holly's going to start us off. So my update for today is last week, we talked about the Innocence Project a lot. 
and I'm actually signed up for their emails and I got and and I know this happens all the time, but I just love to read about it. So I'm just going to pull a quote. Marcellus Williams spent 24 years of his life on death row for a murder that DNA evidence now proves someone else committed. So this was a couple weeks ago, but last it says the quote says last week, Marcellus filed a civil suit against Missouri Governor Mike Parson for dissolving the board of inquiry that has been investigating his innocence claim before it could produce a report and recommendation and against the attorney general, Andrew Bailey, for moving to set an execution date after the governor had illegally dissolved the board. Now he's suing members of the state government and he was exonerated by DNA evidence. So that's another awesome thing that the Innocence Project does. And that's just a little update. That was a crazy case, too. I went and I followed them on social medias and whatnot. And I went and looked up everything about that, too, because that's just you always feel God awful when it's like 24 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit. I can't imagine. No, and I love when they sue them for millions and millions. They should. They should. Yeah. Yep. That person shouldn't have to work a day in their life after that. That is absolutely crazy. Yep. And just the psychological effects of being in prison thinking that you're going to die almost almost any day, you know, is yeah. life-changing, life-altering. I feel like at some point, I can't remember any names of them, but I've seen like documentaries of people who've gotten out of prison after stuff like that. And they're like, oh, it's been 30 years. I don't even know what a phone is. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I cannot imagine how hard it's like you have to teach yourself everything over. And also they don't have like you know, they probably don't have education, you know, or if anything, they got their GED while in prison, but they're not gonna be able to find jobs easy and stuff like that. So crazy. Good job, Holly. All right, Kylie, you up? Uh, so I have slight little Murdoch update, Murdoch, whatever you want to pronounce it. But then I have an ethical question for you guys. So we all know the Murdoch shenanigans. I'm not going to get into it, but Alec Murdoch's attorneys are appealing his conviction and they had a little juicy press conference last week. And they allege that the court clerk, Rebecca Hill, told jurors to not be fooled by the defense and that when Alec was about to testify, she said to watch him closely. Um, The defense is also accusing Rebecca Hill of inventing a story about a Facebook post to remove a juror she she believed might not not vote guilty. Um, She also told the jurors that the deliberations shouldn't take long and wouldn't allow them to take smoke breaks so that that would speed up the process and they'd want to get out of there faster. So if this is all true, whatever, the prosecution has to respond to this appeal. My whole thing is Miss Rebecca Hill wrote a book about the whole trial and working the trial. It's a New York Times bestseller, if that means anything, because apparently all books are now. I don't know if you guys agree with me, but I feel like members of the court and the jury should not be allowed to like profit off of a murder trial or any trial. Yeah. 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 Seems... Like common sense. Yeah. And so when I was looking into this, I found something called the son of Sam law, which doesn't allow convicted like defendants to profit off their crimes. So like, why can't the clerk at the court and the jury? I get like, I hate to say it like, cause I probably, I might read the book, but like people are interested in knowing the story, you know, from a personal detail, but they shouldn't profit any of it like it should go you know like that it should be a no-no that you can profit from that you're you're not the press like what's next you know right like i get talking to the press about it we have all these documentaries already about the specific case that's not even that old right i don't think there would be that much coming from it other than like you know court secrets that we shouldn't even know 
Right. Yeah. Maybe I might read it. Yes. Because I'm horrible and I want to know that stuff, but I, it shouldn't be profited. I probably won't, but no, I think at minimum there should be like a waiting period. Like this is a brand new case. Right. Yeah. 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 We know he's like going to he, appeal. We know. Yeah. Yeah. He's still appealing it. Like the man's alive. If you want to talk about whatever Jack the Ripper, that's fine. But yeah. Yeah. And we know how much media and things like that influences cases that are ongoing. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should push for a new law. Do you have any juicy updates, Kate? I do not. So I was just going to. I was I was literally going to ask Holly how her triathlon went um because I wanted to know whether or not she died while she was swimming how cold was the water it was like blue it was bath water it was lukewarm bath water that's almost I don't even that's almost that might be worse it was yeah I mean I wanted it to be a little cold and like a little refreshing you know no it was bath water it was great did you cramp up did you take any breaks yeah did you have to float on your back no, I did not. So I feel like I overtrained a little bit. Like there was times where I was like swimming and I was so tired. I don't know if it was like adrenaline, but the swimming was like actually okay. What yeah. got me was the very, so it's like, it's swim, bike, run. So the run was the freaking worst part. I mean, yeah. like, you you know, on a bike and it wasn't all uphill. Most of it, it was 50-50. I mean, to ride a bike for that long and then get off and run, it's like my, and, and swimming and not being used to swimming. Um, Your legs are jello. I was jello. Yeah, I was literally jello. And I was so embarrassed because I, everybody wrote their ages on the back of their legs with, a, you either had a, like a little tattoo or a little Sharpie and you wrote your, you know, number down on your arms and you wrote your age on your legs. So here I am sitting here dying and I got these, I got these people passing me. I'm looking at the back of their legs and it's like 63 59 i'm like man screw you like i I hate this right now it's just so insulting yeah but can we also talk about the fact you trained for like what two two seconds yeah okay Okay. yeah so you you overtrained and and you just said that you overtrained i mean for the swimming i overtrained but like everything else i mean those it's some these old people man they were they're jacked these people that do these marathons i mean i love it no no disrespect to people that do marathons i think it's great but they're deranged i mean these people are deranged yeah they're what like what is it called sadist yes enjoy pain pain. yeah Yeah. no it's they have to be have to be i mean well we're glad that you survived you know, it would have been a little bit more fun if you had gotten injured, but it's fine. I know. Um, I know. I was, I was hoping for, I was hoping for a better overtime story, honestly. Yeah. I was truly expecting like foot broken, you know, or she Mm. fell busted nose. Yeah. How'd your partner do? Better than me. I mean, he was like, come on, run. And I was like, stay with you. Yeah. He did stay with me, but he wanted to like, he was like, come on, let's just run. Let's just jog. You got it. You know? And I'm like, worry about yourself, you know, go on. If you want to go boy, like go. Uh, you're you know? like I am running what do you yeah. mean this is my running pace I would have struggled the most with running but it, in yeah. general at at where I am now almost pushing 30 RIP I just can't run to save my life anymore so especially yeah. at the end of doing other exercises no way mm-hmm. and people think running mm-hmm. is just easy. I don't know it's it's a completely different type of exercise to me you have to being in shape yeah. is completely different than being in running shape hate it hate it absolutely disgusting okay, so. so we're we're never doing it again oh no they're signing and, up for next year or you're gonna keep you're gonna keep up with it it's gonna be like a regular thing i mean it, to be honest it was not horrible it's fun to do stuff like that 
I mean, I don't know. I might, I probably wouldn't do it again, but if I had, if someone signed me up and they were like expecting me to, yeah. I would probably feel less intimidated, but I don't know if I'd sign up for funsies, you know? Well, with that, we'll wrap up today's episode and we will see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.